Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. World War II has a powerful hold on the American narrative. The nation, of which I'm now a part, was united in a moral cause to roll back fascism and militarism. But what if the United States was not so united? And what if economics was at least partly to blame? Welcome to Benchmark, a show about the global economy. I'm Daniel Moss, columnist at Bloomberg Opinion in New York. And I'm Scott Landman, an economics editor with Bloomberg News in Washington. We're approaching the 73rd anniversary of Japan's official surrender. And most people are familiar with the role the atomic bombs played in bringing an end to hostilities. Few are familiar with the role that economics played in the end of the Pacific War. In the months between the surrender of Germany and Japan's capitulation, the home front was increasingly divided. Unity was fraying largely because of tensions in the economy and stretched supply chains. Joining us to discuss the final months of the war and the role that economic and commercial decisions played is Mark Galicchio, a professor of history at Villanova University and co-author with Waldo Heinrichs of Implacable Foes, War in the Pacific, 1944-1945. It's the winner of the 2018 Bancroft Prize from Columbia University for outstanding book on U.S. history and diplomacy. Mark, congratulations and thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Mark, tell us, why did you and your co-author focus your efforts on the final years of the conflict and what surprised you the most? Well, we decided to uh, look at this period of the war because we thought that a lot of the writing about the end of the war focused on the decision to uh, drop the atomic bomb. And it really didn't take into account all the factors that led up to the, the use of the atomic bombs. And, and we thought that there had been a lot of emphasis on the, uh, you know, the final days of the war, the military campaigns, but they hadn't uh, incorporated the home front into their discussions or analysis of conditions at the end of the war. So we wanted to kind of broaden the scope of, of our analysis to take um, the home front uh, political factors into consideration, but also to try and understand the logistical challenges that the United States uh, faced in, in waging war against Japan. And we chose uh, to begin in early 1944 because that was when the Americans uh, began to really go on the offensive and began to push ahead against Japan in uh, taking the Marianas, but also with uh, MacArthur moving along the coast of uh, New Guinea and then into the Philippines. 
And it was then that the Americans had at their disposal the new fast carriers that allowed them to make these long strides against the enemy. So it was really a combination of, of sort of what the economy was able to produce to give the forces in the Pacific the tools necessary to wage war over this you know, vast expanse of the Pacific Ocean. Now, Mark, how was the wartime economy organized? And by early 1945, was that starting to unravel? There's this famous quote from about uh, Franklin Roosevelt. He said, Dr. New Deal was going to become Dr. Win the War at that point. And what that really meant was that Roosevelt placed an emphasis on a sort of maximizing production for the war effort, uh, making the United States the uh, arsenal of democracy and really a victory in the war. I mean, he understood uh, reasonably enough that uh, corporate America knew how to mass produce the tools that would be needed to win the war. And, and he needed to defer to them. And of course, that decision was pretty disillusioning to a lot of people who, you know, hoped that the beneficiaries of the New Deal, unions in particular, uh, would be able to hold on to the gains they made. Um, so there was quite a lot of contention. By 1945, how was that uneasy contract? How was that faring? Was it going the distance or were strains really beginning to emerge there? You could see um, strains beginning to emerge. In fact, even in the autumn of 1944, when it looked like the war might be coming to an end before Christmas with the Allies pushing across France very quickly. And there were people, the uh, civilians in charge of the uh, wartime economy, were anxious to begin making the first cautious steps towards transitioning to a peacetime economy because their great fear, and this is what uh, I think bothered them for the remainder of the war, was that if the war were to end suddenly and they weren't prepared for that, transition, there would be millions of men coming home from the war and there'd be no jobs for them because the economy would not have been able to have uh, shifted quickly enough from wartime production to peacetime pursuits. And, um, and of course, they were all haunted by the ghosts of the Great Depression and mass unemployment. And that affected uh, workers in particular who didn't want to get caught in um, a munitions factory or an airplane assembly line and then come to work one day and find that the plant had shut down because uh, the contract had been canceled because those materials were no longer needed. So in 44, you began to see signs of that. But then certainly in early 1945, after the Battle of Bulge and, and when the Allies began to move again, People started getting restive. They were worried about, you know, what the future would portend. And and um, there were signs, uh, isolated cases of factories closing and people being, um, you know, thrown out of work. A- at the same time, uh, the people who were responsible for making sure that the economy uh, continued to produce for the war effort 
Undersecretary of War Robert Patterson, um, General Brian Somerville, who was uh, head of the services of supply, they insisted that there be a maximum effort uh, continuing uh, to produce for the war. They didn't want to have any let up. Were the logistics and supply chains at the time, were, were they really focused on the war and were they not in great shape for the, the rest of the U.S. economy? What kind of state were they in to, you know, to keep the economy going and to keep the, the wartime effort engaged in, in 1945? The, the Army in particular dominated the economy and consumed sort of most of the durable goods and a lot of the agricultural goods. I mean, the, the rationing of meat uh, we're all familiar with. And, and, you know, people were making money in these war-related industries, but they didn't have a lot to spend it on because everything was focused on producing for the war. And so the, the concern was that peacetime industries would not be able to start up. They wouldn't be able to retool in part because they didn't even have the materials necessary to begin producing. And and then they were also worried about labor shortages. So everything really continued to be geared towards wartime production. So you've got these domestic, economic, commercial and political concerns that are percolating away just beneath the surface. Then in early 1945, two key things happen on the battlefield. One is Germany collapses. The other is the American campaign on Okinawa intensifies. Now, what is the interaction between those two things and how does it shape Harry Truman's thinking? Well, there is absolute elation at the surrender of Germany. And then you turn to Okinawa, which was occurring at the same time. The battle began on April 1st. And that was uh, reminiscent of the worst days of World War I, the sort of plotting inch by inch battles causing heavy casualties. And Truman was, was greatly disturbed by that because he could see from the Battle of Okinawa what the invasion of Japan itself would portend. And and this troubled him tremendously. Now, how does that interact with the strains that were beginning to show on domestic wartime economic management? Well, you had asked us, uh, you had asked me earlier what were some of the surprises we found. And this was, a, a for us, a really big surprise. It really does seem that the American public, after Germany surrendered, sort of turned its attention towards thinking about peacetime, assuming that Japan was on the verge of defeat at that point. Um, and I think also sort of thinking about that war against Japan as really just, you know, sort of revolted by it because of the uh, the level of casualties and and the fact that, you know, it seemed to be to no purpose because it was clear that the Japanese could no longer win the war, yet they weren't surrendering. And, and so Americans, you know, kept their eyes, you know, farther ahead towards the horizon, looking uh, to the uh, possibility of peace. And, and um, the public was increasingly restive at this time. You know, they continued to sort of 
give their support to the war. And whenever they they were asked in public opinion polls, they said they were they supported American policies and and that um, they were willing to support rationing. They they abhorred the idea of the black markets and 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 the like. But as individuals, you know, they were making these discrete decisions about what were their best job opportunities. And and uh, they wanted uh, they also this was another big issue. They wanted um, the members of their families who were overseas in Europe to be brought home as quickly as possible. So how much in the end did uh, wartime considerations, you know, just winning the war and how much did domestic economic considerations play a role in the decision the ultimate decision to drop the atomic bombs in Japan? I think that the decision to use the bomb was made when they decided to build the bomb in that sense. But I think what we found was that given the situation on the home front, this uh, fraying of uh, public support for the war, a demand to bring the soldiers back home, get them out of uniform, that to say nothing of the increasingly stiff resistance offered by the Japanese, that all of those factors converge to make it a pretty easy decision for Truman to use the bomb if he wanted to compel Japan's unconditional surrender, then uh, you know, the only way he could do that would be through an invasion, which was looking increasingly more difficult, or the use of the atomic bomb. Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip, who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. Hear about Michael Bublé's entrance into show business. And get business insight from Mark Burnett. Find out what scares my son-in-law, Jason Bateman. And discover the bragging rights that come with beating Michael Jordan at golf. Together, we know just about everything everybody, including sitting presidents. So join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before, tell it like it is, and even sing a song or two. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mark, you write that Truman had approved Operation Olympic, the uh, invasion of Kyushu for late 1945, but was balking at approving plans submitted to him for Operation Coronet, which was a landing on the main island of Honshu the following year. If the decision to drop the bombs was basically made, when they developed the weapon, what role were the economic strains having on planning for Olympic and Coronet? And do you think, in retrospect, when you review the records, how likely was it that they would go ahead if Japan had somehow held on? Well, to sort of back up, I I would say that um, Truman was facing 
a really tough decision in summer of 45. I mean, the Olympic operation had been approved, this initial operation to invade the southernmost of the main islands uh, of Kyushu. Um, but it wasn't to take place until November. And he um, was finding that the army was in, in particularly the army was insisting on keeping almost all the men in uniform that had actually been used to fight a two front war that the army was planning on keeping almost the same number of men in uniform to fight Japan and and his civilian advisors particularly Fred Vincent who was the head of this uh, office of war mobilization and reconversion and and Vincent who was from Kentucky had been a congressman was telling him that the the army's just their monopoly of the economy was really disruptive and was endangering the peace. And, and so he was facing a showdown on this uh, question of, of uh, the necessity of an invasion. We, we don't go so far as to speculate as to what would have happened, except to point out that this whole redeployment process was really bogging down. There were um, all sorts of snags in the rail system in the United States that made it unlikely they'd be able to move troops across the continent. Uh, shipping equipment from uh, France all the way out to the Pacific um, was behind schedule. The, um, the port of Manila wasn't actually able to handle the the capacity it needed to be able uh, to uh, move in order to prepare for the invasions. So, in, in other words, this wasn't really a, a kind of a golden era of unity, leadership, and decision making that some people make it out to be. Is that is that something of a myth, or or was there is there some truth to looking at it that way, even with these problems that you mentioned? It is certainly more fractious than we, I think, generally remember it. The interesting thing is, as I said, the public continued to sort of they were willing to support the leadership. What we found was that the leadership was divided and particularly in Congress. And people were calling in Congress, were calling for a more rapid movement towards economic reconversion. And and so I'd say it really was beginning at the top of government Congress, the sort of opinion makers, as I said, the civilian war mobilizers. Um, one, one of the um, other surprises we found was that um, the sort of level of criticism that was aimed at the army at this time. Truman himself, when he had served on this, uh, what was known as the Truman Committee to investigate um, uh, military expenditures, he had privately said he was convinced that uh, Bray and Somerville would, would give the United States a fascist economy if he could. And there was, so there was this suspicion all along about the sense that the army was not at all flexible in its demands. They were just consuming too much and not willing, you know, to trim the fat anywhere. Mark, this is fascinating. When we think of wartime divisions, we tend to think of Vietnam, Iraq. If we're interpreting you correctly, these divisions were present during World War II. 
But as long as there was battlefield victory, a lid could be kept on that. Once the momentum there on the battlefield stops, as it appeared to be starting to do, then suddenly these things open up. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good way of putting it because it's towards the end of the battle for Okinawa when you begin to see people, and, and at first it was uh, uh, legislators in the Republican Party and, and former President Herbert Hoover who began to suggest that Japan was ready to surrender and that they might be induced to surrender if the United States was willing to modify the terms of surrender, if the United States was willing to accept something less than unconditional surrender. And if that were the case, then you wouldn't need to continue these wartime restrictions on the economy. You could begin a more um, sort of gradual transition to peacetime. And, uh, and of course, you would save thousands, tens of thousands of lives in the bargain. And so I, I think it's at that moment when everyone knows that the next big campaign is going to be an invasion somewhere in Japan, that they begin to raise the possibility that maybe there's another way to end the war. And, and that was, that was a, I think, a further sort of pressure on Truman. Um, he, he really resisted modifying unconditional surrender. Mark, Thank you for sharing your perspective with us as we remember VJ Day. Oh, you're welcome. I'm I, I really happy to have uh, had a chance to uh, talk to you about this. Benchmark will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, our Bloomberg app, as well as podcast destinations such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us. You can find us on Twitter. Follow me at Moss underscore Eco. Scott? I'm at Scott Landman. Benchmark is produced by Topher Forhairs. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.